welcome to episode 115 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasts. Falling down for you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, but as you can probably hear, I've got this like little lingering cold, and it's made my voice super manly. And whenever this happens, two things occur to me. One, I want to sing a Barry White song. And two, I want to record like all my outgoing voicemails because I just feel like my voice is so much cooler in this deep, resonant tone. Yeah. You know, they've done studies that if you have a deep voice, uh, but not too deep, there's like a sweet spot that um, you're more likely to win a political election. Where do you get all this information from? Um, I think that was Hidden Mind with some guy with an Indian name. I don't remember. Shankar Vedantam? Yeah, there we go. Sweetest name ever. I'm pretty sure it was Hidden Hidden Brain. Um, but I heard I learned on it that Margaret Thatcher actually took voice lessons to lower her voice. Because even before all these studies, she recognized that the more she sounded like a man, the more likely she was to get elected. <laughs> so if you listen, they actually played a little bit. If you listen to her voice throughout her career, it progressively gets lower until it hits like a certain sweet spot. So she she took voice lessons to get there. It's crazy. As if there was any question that we scripted our conversations, <laughs> this opening just definitely proves that we do not. We do not script anything. <laughs> but what you've just walked away with is already worth the, worth the price of admission. We've all learned that Margaret Thatcher wanted to talk like a man so that she could get elected to office. Absolutely. So let's do some recommendations. We haven't done our affirmations and denials in a while, and we're not going to do a full set tonight, but we do have a couple recommendations. Jesse, what do you have for us tonight? I think last year about this time, I recommended that you should go to Pandora and create like a Christmas jazz station. Do you remember oh, yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's still good stuff, but this year I find I'm going in the opposite direction. I think this is the opposite direction, but I'm into this thing right now, the past several Christmases, where taking like these traditional Christmas songs, celebrating the incarnation and finding different arrangements because that forces me to go back into the lyrics and really appreciate them and process them as opposed right. to going on autopilot because the melodies are all similar. Right. So what I would like to recommend is an album called Midnight Clear, which is a compilation of various artists. It is all these wonderful tradition, traditional Christmas songs yeah. done hardcore. Wow. It is, it is awesome. Like Screamo style? <laughs> yeah, kind of. But it's like really, yes, okay, there is some of that. Uh, but it is, it is like super tasteful and like very artistic. So Midnight Clear, if you want to kind of take your Christmas music up the next level, this is it right here. So you can bookend your Christmas listening with some Christmas jazz and some Christmas hardcore. You can find it on Spotify. It's awesome. Yeah. See, when you say are super artistic and very tasteful, what I hear is um, annoying and not very good. Because <laughs> you and Ashley absolutely love uh, Me Without You and you think it's like the best thing ever. And I listen to it and I know that your wife shares my perspective on this. I listen to it and I'm like, why can't they just sing like a normal person instead of trying to do this weird talk, sing, scream thing that they have going on? I'm like, just just sing like a normal person. Okay, second recommendation. 
the new Me Without You album <laughs> entitled Untitled is so good. And for the record, it's not just that I, I think they're awesome. They, just, they are actually awesome. But you're right. They, they appeal to like a particular taste, but I've, I don't know, I've just always really enjoyed their music. It's, it's really technical and beautiful. And th- there is something about the different textures that they create with both the singing and the talking. I don't know. I've just always been in love with it. So if, if anybody out there is looking for some uh, more good music that will either bring you closer to your spouse or drive you further away, then yeah, I can recommend Me Without You. It's beautiful. Well, I know that my shared disdain for Me Without You is something that your wife and I uh, have in common. And so it's brought us closer together as in-laws, which is uh, a positive thing. Well, that just makes me so happy. Yes. So I have a recommendation this uh, week as well. So I have in my hands uh, the fall issue of the Westminster Theological Journal, which um, I love Westminster and I love the Westminster Theological Journal, but I'm a little perturbed that my fall issue of the Westminster Theological Journal did not arrive until December 8th. But the content in this journal is phenomenal. So um, I think it's like $30 a year. You get two journals, but the the content ranges, you know, most, most published journals are like PhD level um, writers. This journal has really good quality PhD level writers, but they also take submissions and regularly publish stuff by undergrads and graduate students as well. So it's got like a really wide range, especially like book reviews they take from undergrads. But in this issue, they have um, not only do they have some great lesser known figures, but they have an article by Richard Muller. So it's like really heavy hitters. But they also have a really, really phenomenal um, article about John Owen and the question of eternal submission of the son. And uh, if anyone listening to the show knows anything about me, it's that I hate the EFS position with a passion of a thousand sons. So it was great to see um, to see an, an article in an academic journal addressing this, especially since John Owen is commonly kind of... I think inappropriately co-opted by that side of the discussion as someone who sort of like had a prototypical view of that. Um, And I haven't read the article in completion yet, but I'm pretty sure that they just knocked that out of the park. So um, you should check it out. Uh, You can go to Westminster uh, WTS website, which is just, uh, I think it's westminster.edu. And you can subscribe through the Westminster Seminary um, website. It's a great journal. Um, Just really, really good stuff. Have we talked on this podcast before about John Owen and the boots? I don't think so. How he was, he rocked some like really killer red boots. Oh yeah. We did talk about that. Okay. I just, I love John Owen and I loved him even more when I learned that. You know what that makes me think of? Ashley and I just finished the show, How I Met Your Mother. And one of the running gags in that show is that the main character has these red cowboy boots that he thinks look awesome and everybody realizes looks terrible. But I bet John Owen really did rock the red boots and did look really sweet. Yeah, that's the way I like to imagine it, that he he knew what was up and everybody was like, man, look at those boots. Yeah. Little known fact, so there's there's the phrase, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Uh, The next line is actually rock these uh, red boots or these red boots will be rocking you. So little that's something you learn in a church history degree. Is it? See, yeah, that's I wish I had that kind of education. I I always envisioned that it was written across, 
each of the boots, like always be killing sin on one boot or sin will be killing you. Well, there was that too. It was like on the bottom. So when he walked in the snow, he like left that everywhere. He left that imprint. We've constructed this whole, uh, this whole thing about John Owen. That's a total lie. But somebody somewhere down the road in like a hundred years is going to be doing a podcast and be like, I was listening to this podcast and I learned about this thing about this guy named John Owen. I can only hope. Yeah. I can only imagine. (laughs) Wow. Don't don't even get me started on that song. You know how I feel about that song. Mercy me. Yes. Well played. Yeah. So what what are we talking about tonight? We are going to talk about uh, vocational calling. So um, we did an episode very early on. I think it was episode two, wasn't it? It was. So we did an episode kind of about like vocation and calling, and that was sort of a way for us to kind of introduce ourselves and kind of what we do in life and and where we see ourselves. Um, But we want to get a little bit more technical tonight about the theological underpinnings of the idea of a vocation or a calling. So um, buckle up. It's going to be a good episode. Yeah, it is. And this is a good thing for us to kind of circle back around on because if you're involved in any kind of Christian circles or networks, calling is that word that's used ubiquitously to speak about a lot of different things. And one of the things I appreciate about the Reformed tradition is just how it does kind of place a special emphasis on understanding what calling means and how it actually applies to our lives. Not in this kind of like distant way, but in a way where we're internalizing what it means to be called and unified with Christ. And this has been so helpful just in my own theological thinking and maturity. So I, I was stoked when you suggested we should talk about this because I think it doesn't get a lot of attention except for when it comes to like vocational ministry. Right. And the Reformed tradition has so much to bring to bear on us understanding that in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think this is kind of a perennial issue because, you know, I think... Um, People look, Reformed Christians particularly, and I, I don't want to speak for the women, but I know Reformed men particularly, I think sometimes have kind of like calling envy. Like they see, right. I think this is what drives a lot of our sort of the cult of celebrity that seems to be more prominent in the Reformed tradition than it does in others. Like I, I can't think of one like Lutheran celebrity pastor, like Rod Rosenblatt, maybe, but like that's not exactly a celebrity. So it seems like the reform tradition fosters this more than others. And I think this idea of calling envy or sort of like um, vocation envy is part of what drives that is we see we see figures, whether it is, you know, reform forum, right? Camden Busey clearly has not only is he called as a pastor, um, but he has a calling as like the architect of this sort of amazing reformed theology podcast and now sort of like this amazing reformed theology podcast network, or we look at, um, you know, like Tim Keller or Don Carson or some of these men that are pastors, but also have this sort of like multinational like ministry where they seem to have this weird sort of like outsized influence that they just sort of stumbled into. Right. You don't see like, there's not like these meteoric rises every day, but you see these people that almost kind of stumbled into the spotlight. And I think we look at that and we get a little jealous and we're kind of like, well, why can't I have that kind of calling? Why can't, why can't my calling be significant? Like, um, you know, like this guy's is, or like that guy's is. Right. That's a good point. Especially if like a lot of people who have come into reformed theology, you have a turn of mind for this type of thing and you're right. interested and you're studying and you're passionate about it. And it becomes 
almost a hobby in and of itself. And there can be, I think, a sense of like, well, I would love to be able to do that very thing. Right. And so we, we have to wrestle through it. So I guess it's both, you're right, it kind of cuts both ways. It's like good and bad. And that's why uh, we should talk about it because I think that as I've been thinking through what it means to be called, it's driven me just, of course, back really to the beginning in the scriptures. Yeah. And I think the approach we need to develop for a biblical understanding, it has to stem from this analysis of like the early chapters of Genesis, because obviously this is where God first creates people and he's giving a particular commission to, for them to undertake with particular tasks and to assume certain responsibilities. So most of the time we focus on the foundational truth that we are made in the image of God. And that, of course, is right for us to start there. Right. What I love about the early reformers is they pushed forward on this idea because it's not only true that we are made in God's image, but that also we were made to image God, to reflect him. And those are those are totally different things in my mind. Right. Uh, they're connected, of course, but they have different outworkings because being in the image of God refers not only to who we are, but also to what we are about, like what we're meant to do. Yeah. And that reflects, uh, I would say, like an expansion of some of the traditional views of what it means to be made in the image of God, because those views seem to concentrate mainly on image as referring to nature and character of humanity, but not really to any sort of functionality. And that disconnect is very harmful. I think it can lead to the kind of envy that you were talking about. So like the image of God is explained by emphasizing the job that God gave us to perform in the world. And it was God's design that people build an earthly culture for his glory. So that's why like we commonly go to like Genesis one twenty eight, where we get the mandate that God puts forth. Right. And these tasks for humanity compose what we would traditionally call like the cultural mandate. So we've got multiplication and dominion. And so what strikes me there is that God is actually, he's validating and imbuing value into the creation for creation's sake, because it gives him glory, including the humanly earthly culture. So there's something already there starting that we, we have value merely because God has placed us here and put us into this midst. And so first God's giving Adam and Eve the commission to multiply. So it's be fruitful, increase, fill. And of course, their job was to produce enough images of God, essentially, to cover the earth, not graven images, incidentally. <laughs> um, and, and, and speaking of that, I, when I think of this verse now, I always think of this funny conversation. So, you know, this be fruitful and multiply. I was speaking once with a missionary in Africa who worked actually in agriculture. And he, we were getting to know each other. And this was through Skype. And he asked me if I had any children. I said, no, not yet. But that's something that we'd, we'd like to do. And he just, now this can sometimes happen in different cultures, but he was just like very straightforward. And he just asked me, how many are you going to have? And I (laughs) I didn't expect that. Like usually when somebody asks you, you say, oh no, we're going to do that. Or even if you say, I have two kids, he was, he said to me point blank, he's like, how many are you going to have? And I was really caught off guard. And I was like, um, I mean, maybe like two or, so I was kind of giving this answer that was very much unsure. And he stopped me and said, do you think that's enough? And I said, (laughs) uh, I, what do you mean? He's like, well, is that addition or is that multiplication? Yeah. So, so it's funny, even this, I always think about that. So there's all these words wrapped up in this commission. So then the second thing, of course, is that God ordained them to exercise dominion over the earth. So we've got fill, subdue, and rule. And of course, Adam and Eve were to exercise authority over creation, managing all these, these resources. So all that to say, like, what I love about the Reformed traditions is from the very starting point, from the outset, it's basically confirming that our purpose has been bound up with our identity. They're tightly coupled and cannot be separated. But sometimes in our evangelical thinking, we separate them. I mean, have you ever run into that? Yeah. I mean, I think some of that is uh, on a theological level, 
has to do with the various influences in American evangelicalism. So evangelicalism in America is sort of this fusion of um, reformed overtones in the beginning. You know, the Puritans come in, they drive a lot of what's going on in religion in America. And then you have the Lutheran pietists coming over and it sort of becomes this amalgamation. And one thing that's interesting about the Lutheran tradition is they would actually, um, in in various ways, but more or less would affirm that the image of God is actually destroyed entirely in the fall. And so Lutheran vocation cannot be rooted in image of God because they would say everyone has a vocation even prior to coming to faith. So in the Reformed tradition, though, we do root vocation in the way you're doing it in the fact that as image, bear, image bearers, we're called to be fruitful um, and productive individuals, right? We we produce right. and we create in a in a creaturely fashion because the God that we're imaging produced and created in a divine fashion, and so this this amalgamation of of Lutheran Pietism and you know with the Moravian influence and Puritan the Puritan work ethic, this idea that the image of God and the the multiplying and the fruitfulness are distinct and separated. Um, I think that's probably historically uh, comes from that kind of fusion of things. But yeah, I think people disconnect those two concepts all the time. Yeah, it's really been helpful for me to try to merge them back together. That imaging of God, I think, is a challenging thing to think about. If we ask ourselves, how am I imaging God right. in what he has tasked me to do? Yeah, And, you know, the fulfillment of that cultural mandate is so crazily frustrated by sin, which, I mean, this is... Uh, I mean, everybody who has experienced Monday morning knows what that's about. But it, it strikes me that like in Eden, cult, like worship of God and culture, the development of human relationships, it was part of one united kingdom. I mean, right. like picking apples um, from the good tree, what was like kingdom work, <laughs> like automatically. Yeah. But then you have like after the banishment from paradise of Adam and Eve, um, Adam is our federal head, the era of this divided kingdom begins. And it's, it's like right away. And I think this, this builds into like what you're saying about this disconnect between the, the understanding our calling because Cain built a city of power and wealth and Seth, which is God's replacement for Abel, was really the one that was a patriarch of the city of God. So Cain's descendants were praising themselves for their achievements and celebrating what they did under their own power. And it was only under Seth that people began to call on the name of the Lord. Right. So it's interesting to me to see how, like, I, when I think about this, I see how multiplying and imaging or dominion are so jacked up because of sin. Because whereas before, with unfallen humanity, I mean, natural reproduction would have also meant spiritual reproduction. Like, there was no necessary uh, disconnect between those two. Right. So in other words, like children born of Adam and Eve in a sinless state would have naturally grown up to mirror perfectly the image of God, both like in their person and they're taking upon themselves the imaging tasks of multiplication and dominion. Right. Um, but what's weird now is with regard to multiplication, that kind of means like as Christians today are to fulfill that task of multiplying God's images in the world, it's going to require involvement in both the natural and spiritual parenting, like preaching the gospel to our own children and then to others as well. So like, I guess to put it another way, like multiplying images on this side of the cross means showing people how they can be made right with God through trusting in Jesus' death. And that is for me, like a really empowering direct line to universal calling of the Christian. So to, to greater or lesser degrees, we are going to participate that in formal or more informal ways. But it seems to me that we can't get around 
what multiplication means for us on this side of the cross and how that's uniquely linked to our calling. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's part of why, you know, the priesthood of all believers is a concept that I don't think gets gets connected to vocation very often, but um, you know, in the old Testament, the priesthood was like located at the temple. Right. And they were out in the out in the cities. Each city had Levites and priests that lived in them. But the the center of the priesthood and the center of the religious activity was in the temple. And so the, in the, the way that the faith was transmitted was primarily through the family down to the children. But the religious um, apparatus of Judaism was the temple. Now that we're a priesthood of all believers, our priesthood has been disseminated out from the temple, you know, if, if we want to, I wouldn't necessarily draw a direct comparison between the church and the temple, but in this case, I think it works, is the, the priesthood is disseminated out from the temple or the church into the rest of the world, into our ordinary vocation. So instead of being a professional priest, most of us are not not professionals of the clergy line, right? We're not professional right. clergy members, but that doesn't make us not priests. We're still priests because we're still members of the priesthood of all believers. And that's part of why it's important for, at least for the Reformed, that we don't have priests, right? Our clergies are not called priests. Our clergymen are not called priests because we're all priests in a certain sense and in a specific sense. And that priesthood goes out into the world, out to, you know, I work at a hospital, you work at a bank. You can't get much more just plain Jane secular than that, right? You you deal with the money, I deal with people's health. And, um, but we still have a ministry as priesthood, as members of the priesthood of all believers to bring the gospel into those places, both explicitly by proclaiming the gospel and sharing the gospel, but also implicitly by living lives of holiness and righteousness that reflect that set apart status as priests in the, the priest of all believers. So I, I think those two things are probably closer tied then we realize, and that really was something that came up a lot during the the Reformation, was this this flattening out of um, of the ministerial class. That's not to say, and and we'll talk about it in a little bit, but that's not to say that there's not a particular and unique vocation for some people to be professional pastors, right. uh, I, I professional kind of in quotation marks, but to be pastors who who their job is to minister in the church. Um, that's not the only uh, religious calling anymore. Um, it used to be, but it's not anymore. And that's something that's really unique to the Protestant tradition. Right on. I think that the priesthood of believers is like in a bear market. It's really undervalued. Right. And that's something that we kind of need to bring back up even into our Lord's Day celebrations, I think. Because one of the things that I'll be honest kind of like irks me a little bit is the use of the word call and calling kind of just in a colloquial way. Yeah. I think we need to avoid the practice of speaking of things about calling in ways that are foreign to the Bible and also to the experience of most Christians, which is basically what you're saying. Because, you know, we need to speak to each other about our common and mutual calling to live as disciples of Jesus Christ so that it becomes common parlance among all of God's people instead of the exclusive language of missionaries or ministers. And just by way of like example, uh, in my own head, like I've often thought that it's strange to even speak of like vocational ministry when we're talking about pastors. And really what we should be saying, maybe more specifically, is like they're ministers of the word because right. we're all ministers in some way. 
And as you said, God has uniquely gifted some to gain their remuneration, like their actual living from pastoral work, but it doesn't right. remove the burden of responsibility. And so we, we really all must learn to think of ourselves as a called people living out our calling in like a multiplicity of ways. Yeah. And I don't know how we get there, except to kind of have these kind of conversations and go back into the scriptures and get really serious about the fact that what we should want for ourselves is more than just like you or I going to work and then thinking that we're really living out our calling because during like our lunch break, break we share Jesus with somebody. Like right. we, the, the universal call of the Christian is this idea of what does it mean to be made in the image of God and then to image God as well, because you could do one theoretically without the other. Yeah. And so we really need to come to grips with the fact that the mandate in this, this cultural sense is to think even simplistically like every space that I go into, do I make it better? by bringing the presence of God right. and the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Every meeting I go into, do I make it better and leave it a better place? And that's a mindset that is way more fully orbed and far more robust than just thinking it's about kind of smuggling in some Christian language once in a while, or just not swearing, right. or just being polite. Like all those things are not necessarily imaging God because there is a common grace where those can just be perceived as, well, this is Jesse's a nice person, or or Tony is like really polite, and he's he's always so helpful. Um, that's not the gospel. That's not living out the call. Yeah, yeah. And so if we think about Adam in the garden, right? His his calling, his vocation, as we've said, was to subdue the earth and to fill it. Right. So there's an ordering to that. There's a um, there's a cultivating, right? He he has this garden in front of him that, that God had planted. And God essentially says, make the rest of the world like this garden, right? Go right. out into the rest of the world, which is this wild kind of untamed land where there's no, there's no plants yet. There's no, um, it hasn't been cultivated and make this, make this, make the rest of this world like this garden temple that I've created. And just as I have filled this garden with with my image bearers, I want you to go out and fill this garden, the rest of this garden that you're going to cultivate with image bearers. And that calling, that that task is not reversed when Adam falls, right? And and, and the very nature of how Adam is cursed judicially and how Eve is cursed judicially proves that that's not changed because he's still called to cultivate the land and now the land will will resist him, right? Thorns and thistles. Eve is not called to cease childbearing. She's now called to continue childbearing, but it's going to be more difficult. And where that connects, I think, is that we're just tending a different garden now, right? So we're still called to go out right. into the workplace and to make it like the Garden of Eden. In, in this this sense that we're supposed to bring order to it, we're supposed to bring it under the dominion of God, not in like a crass, like I'm going to manage my employees by the Ten Commandments kind of a way, but in, in, in the sense that as a Christian, I believe that the moral law, which is uh, represented in the Ten Commandments, is a universal moral law. So whether you're a Christian or not, it's still bad to lie. Whether you're a Christian or not, right. it's still bad to steal. And so I, I govern um, my workplace according to the moral law because that's just the moral law. That's just baked into the nature of reality. So if my employee lies or my employee steals, then I'm going to govern according to that moral law, which incidentally, they also recognize because it's woven into their nature. So our task as... Um, post-fall humans is not any different than Adam's was. We're still to subdue the earth and to fill it. 
Um, it's just a much more difficult task now. And ultimately, the point is that we can't fulfill that task in our own power. Jesus Christ is the only one who has fulfilled that task or will fulfill that task. And in the eschaton, he will bring that task to its culmination where he finally subdues the earth and makes all of the earth his kingdom again. But, um, you know, we just have to remember that we still are called to go out into the world and to to cultivate it. It's It's not like we stop being... Um, God's image-bearing gardeners just because we don't live in an agricultural society anymore. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, it strikes me in thinking about examples throughout Scripture, we see that there's this routine encouragement to have that integrated kind of life, to to realize this calling is something that was not fabricated like post-fall or even post-crucifixion, but it's been God's consistent covenant with his people to establish this kind of good work. So I was thinking about David. I just pulled this up from Psalm 78. This is verse uh, 70. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to the shepherd, Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with skillful hand. Right. What I find fascinating about these verses is that the psalmist rightly saw that David was God's shepherd both before and after David was king. So yeah. the only thing that really has changed was the sphere and the subjects of the shepherding, which is which is wild. So in other words, it's not just like God was creating transferable skill set here, but here is a purpose, an identity, and a calling, yeah. which is resolute and sure, and that God is using even far beyond what we could imagine for ourselves. The plan that God has for us in taking this calling seriously is the no, nothing less than the fulfillment of his kingdom as he deems it fit through Christ on this earth. So just as David had faithfully shepherded the animals which God had created, so too did he faithfully shepherd the people whom God had created. So it seems right. to me that the psalmist's intent was that we would see that the whole of David's life was this one continuous act of service to God. Yeah. And now that I think about it, like there's so many, of course, examples of that throughout the scriptures, like John the Baptist and, um, you know, like just, I think of the passage in Luke where John the Baptist has preached to these crowds and the people are cut to the heart by his words and respond with this genuine repentance toward God, which like incidentally, not to get us on a rabbit trail, of course, is this is often the passage I hear used by our, you know, loved Armenian brothers and sisters to say, well, here are people saying, what do we need to do to be saved? Um, but of course that comes only after the scripture tells us they've been cut to the heart. Right. Um, and so he gets all these different people from these different professions inquiring, saying, what do we have to be, do to be saved? And so to the one who's a tax collector, John says, don't collect any more than they're required to. To the soldiers, he says, don't ex- extort money and don't abuse or accuse people falsely. Um, what's interesting is there, of course, he never says, leave everything that you're doing. Right. Um, just, just go and follow us as quote unquote missionaries. Go to this people group. Uh, that's not to discount that some are directed by God to participate in those things. But there is this wonderful empowerment to say, wherever you are, be fully there because that's where God has placed you. Will you not, if you will not image God in that place, who will image God in that place? Yeah. Yeah. And this may sound weird um, and and we can kind of transition uh, into sort of maybe like, what does this look like in the Christian life? But on one level, the pastoral calling, the call to be a pastor or to be a missionary, like calling into some sort of vocational ministry, you know, quote unquote vocational ministry, um, is just a permutation of the general call that all Christians have to their exactly. vocation. And that may sound like 
at odds with how um, sort of like restrictive the pastoral office is or how the high standards of the pastoral office. But this is actually embedded in the Christian tradition, in the, in the um, Reformed tradition. And that was the whole point of this recovery of ordinary vocation, is that in the Middle Ages, there was the first class Christians that were the priests, and then a, a little bit lower than that were the monks and the nuns. Um, and then there was everyone else. And there, the, you know, the monks and the nuns and the priests were called... And the other people, well, they were okay too. Um, In the Reformation, they were saying no. Like, yes, some people have to be pastors. We have to train pastors. There's specific requirements given to us in the scriptures, right? It's not like the scripture says, like, here's the criteria for being a pastor and here's the criteria for being a farmer, right? It doesn't say that. But the, the insight of the Reformation is that this vocation over here is only given specific emphasis in the scripture and specific guidelines in the scripture because it's related to the religion of Christianity. The other ones are not because they're, they're common grace vocations. They're not necessarily related to the religion in, in the sense that being a pastor is. And I, I think that's something we miss. We, we talk about being a pastor as a high calling. And in a certain sense, that's true. But it's not any higher of a calling than any other calling. And so I think sometimes our own language betrays a little bit that we still we still sort of slip into that middle age mindset, not middle age like thirties and forties and fifties, but like middle age like the medieval mindset. That the pastors are like the real Christians. Those are the professional Christians. Right. Um, they're not professional Christians, they're professional ministers. That's that's different. All all pastors are Christians, of course, but they're not professional Christians any more than you, I, you or I are professional Christians. So I thought maybe we could kind of take this, maybe just take a, a little bit of time and talk about the 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 theology of the call to ministry as just sort of the rubric for how all ordinary vocational calls function. Does that make sense? That's a good way to put it. I, I like the way you said that because that's basically what I've been thinking is that the responsibility of this call is on everybody's shoulders by nature of being part of the family of Christ. By being united with Christ, you automatically, like it's a package deal. Like you get this bundled up Comcast style. It comes to you and it has, it bears the same kind of weight of accountability. So for instance, of course, like if we went into our churches on the Lord's day and the pastor just confessed that he hadn't prayed at all that week, we would be rightly like shocked. Be like, well, you're the pastor. Right. But yet how many of us come in with such a lax prayer life and such a you know shallow prayer closet? And yet we're, we should be bearing the same type of responsibility in terms of our being united with Christ and that uniting then overflowing into our image bearing of him into the areas in which we live and work. So like even I'm with you, like I think this comes down to even simple things like reforming our celebration of calling. So one of those areas I think where we can kind of carry on is when we have like a person who is quote unquote ordained or goes into ministry or goes to the mission field. And again, I'm not saying that those aren't the roles that God has uniquely gifted people and they are appropriate and they are right and we need them. But typically those sorts of services where we celebrate those things and we're, we're, we should celebrate those things uh, are greeted with no small amount of fanfare, especially when it comes to like things like ordination. But what I've been thinking is Shouldn't we have the same sort of enthusiasm 
in celebration every time like a college student graduates and embarks on his or her chosen career path or every time someone leaves one field to take up another or when an unemployed person finds some kind of meaningful work. I mean, we should recognize that the call and commission of every person in the congregation is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in all its various ways. So if we lay hands and set apart people for work in China, why should we not do the same for people who are in the field of ministry that's in the Ford factory or the local high school or the Walmart? So I think it's... I'm with you because I think what we're saying, I think what we're saying is that we need to understand that the call of every Christian is elevated. It is manifested in different ways and empowered under different authorities, but they are all should be elevated and held to a, to a high level because it would be great, I think, to have a day for the entire congregation in, in you know, our local churches to commit themselves to live and work unreservedly, both for the advancement of God's kingdom and for the faithful management of, of his creation, all to his glory. And to really personalize and internalize and metabolize that what you do is the calling. And we're like setting everybody apart yeah. for that purpose. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we have to be careful. Um, you know, there are some people who want to do things like um, like an ordination service when someone gets a new job. That's not a pastoral job. I think we have to be careful um, because... The the pastoral office is, in some senses, a unique calling. And, and the reason, so this is the way that I look at it. The reason we do ordination services is for the church to publicly recognize that a particular person has been called to and has the requisite gifts and abilities and, and whatnot to the office of, usually of like an ordained elder, or sometimes they ordain deacons, things like that. Um the reason the church does that, though, is because they're uniquely qualified to do that. It's not as though um, the church is doing – it wouldn't make sense, for example, for the church to um, ordain someone to be a doctor, like to be a, a surgeon. Because right. The, the, yeah, of course. The church is not qualified to make those decisions. They're not called to. They're not qualified. They don't have the requisite knowledge. Um, in a certain sense, like they're not the hiring manager. Right. So so when we think about ordaining, um, there's a there's a religious element to it or, or a, a theological element to it that we have to recognize. But the actual act of ordaining an elder or ordaining a, a deacon is not of a totally different class than um, an employer selecting an employee. And so I want to run through, um, you know, I've, I've mentioned that I'm, I'm taking these courses through the North American Reform Seminary. Um, I'm working on an MDiv. And the first class that they have you take is called Preparatory Studies. And it's basically, um, I would actually, if I was to rename the course, I would call it the Theology of the Call. And the reason that it is, is, is it's all of this theological writing and lectures and paper writing about the theology of a call to ministry. And so there's a set of lectures they have you listen to by Albert Martin, who um, I don't really know much about him, but his name pops up in all sorts of really interesting ways. But he does a five-part lecture on it, and he identifies these four indispensable elements to a biblical call to Christian ministry. He says that a person must have the desire to go into ministry, and that desire must be born of right motives. There must be graces indicating genuine, mature Christian experience, right? That's not entirely, doesn't translate entirely um, because, you know, a person who's called to be a surgeon 
They, they don't necessarily have to be a Christian to do that. But I would actually say that for a Christian to properly recognize their calling in a, in a quote unquote secular vocation requires them to be a genuine, mature Christian, right? You can't be a Christian who's called to something if you're not a Christian. Um, the third is he indicates gifts, which indicate divine provision, so that would be the example he uses is like a guy who really wants to be a football player, but only weighs 120 pounds is probably not going to be a football player. It doesn't matter how much he wants to. It doesn't matter how mature he is. It's just not going to happen if he's too small. Um, and then the fourth one he talks about is um, like divine providence, which opens the door to an actual call to ministry. And so I, I bring these up because I wanted to sort of use this as the outline that we think about our ordinary calls into vocation. Right. It's not as though a person can be called into something. Um, for example, a person who who decides I need I need to go and get a job. Um, I'm going to be an accountant. Um, if they don't have this desire to be an accountant, then we probably should be questioning whether or not they're actually called to be an accountant. Um, and, and so these different things, they, they play into this idea that it's not only pastors who have to have a desire born out of right motives in order to affirm that they've been called into a particular um a particular field right if i say i want to be a i want to be um a surgeon because i want to make a lot of money because i'm a greedy person well that's probably not a lawful reason to be called into being a surgeon and so we would question right. if that's the primary reason why someone wants to go into a particular profession we should question whether that's a legitimate calling by God. And one of the things that struck me um, again and again through these lectures that I've been listening to is that the call to ministry, and this is how I started thinking about the idea that the call to ministry is not different than the call to a different secular profession, is it's an ordinary call. It's not, it's not a supernatural call. It's not an extraordinary call. Um, it's not like David's call to be king, which was an extraordinary call, right? He had a prophet come to him and say, you're going to be king. I'm going to anoint you now, even though it's going to be many, many years before you actually become a king. That was an extraordinary call or, or the call of Simon Peter to leave his vocation and become a disciple. That was an extraordinary call. But in the post apostolic era, our calls, whether it's to ministry, to formal ordained church ministry, the ministry of the word, or whether it's a call to be a person who works in the financial sector or a, a person who works in like me, who works in middle management in a hospital, right? That call is an ordinary call. There wasn't like skywriting or a voice from heaven saying you should apply for this job. Um, but it's this ordinary vocation. So maybe we should talk a little bit about like what kinds of things should the Christian look for? How, how do we think through what it means to be called in terms of like choosing a profession or choosing a vocation? That's a really great question. And obviously that's one that a lot of people, especially younger people who are Christians really wrestle through because right. maybe their rubric for, through which they're processing these ideas are slightly off. And, and as you're posing that question, what immediately came to mind is that common verse out of first Thessalonians four, where you know, Paul writes, but we urge you brethren to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own business and to work well with your hands as we directed you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and be dependent on no one. And there's something wonderfully liberating in that because that verse basically opens up kind of as you're asking these many avenues for the work that God may give us to do. And with so many things, at least in my own life, I found that when 
we often, I think, know what we are to do when we kind of get in the pocket or like we're in the groove and there is a satisfaction from doing that work that fills us in a sense. And there is a complimentary understanding that the gifts or the talents that we have been given also support that particular function. I think that oftentimes we just make it much harder on ourselves than we need to be. And we've talked about before how sometimes the work that you do, let's say the work that you're compensated for, the one that, that what you're actually paid to do, is sometimes even not the work that you really want to do. Right. Uh, and yet we, we would be hard pressed to say, well, God is not, that is not your calling for this particular moment. You know, as if God has made a mistake or it's beyond his reach yeah. to be able to put you in the exact place of the things you want to do. And I think the apostles like common sense approach to piety in this verse is really revolutionary for many of us because we were brought up with these different expectations, like pietistic fundamentalism and evangelicalism taught us that whatever couldn't be justified in terms of soul winning and personal piety, that was like somewhat inferior. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that it's important to remember that the kingdom of God advances through word and sacrament in the power of the Holy spirit, but the kingdoms of the world, they realistically advanced through things like the arts and science and technology and literature, education, agriculture, business, all that stuff. And that is necessary and good. So if you have a turn of mind to be an accountant, I don't know why we started using accountants as an example, but this is great. Uh, because accounting is awful. Like I, I was, I was, I was going to say, I, I literally, that's the most boring thing I could think of. That's like the worst, the worst. I'm sure that there's someone out there who listens to the show. That's an accountant. That's like, how dare you? How dare you, sir? But I just, that's why it came up is it's like the most boring, annoying job I could think of. But that's the beauty of it is that the people who are called to it, it's not the most boring job. Exactly. It's something that they enjoy. It's something that they, um, it's something that they're passionate about. It's something that God's equipped them for. Right. That, and that's, that is a beautiful thing. Like that in itself preaches about the extent of God's graciousness, both common grace, but the way in which he has brought together the society and culture to serve one another in such a way. Because I often think about this, I think I said it before, in terms of like dental hygienists. Like there's no way you could get me excited about putting my hands in people's mouths all day long. <laughs> yeah. And yet there, there are people that are stoked about that. And you know how it is like, even if you don't enjoy going to the dentist, there's nothing like licking your teeth after they've been cleaned. Like it's such a satisfying feeling. Um, it's a beautiful thing to get your teeth clean and especially by somebody who loves to do it and does it like exceptionally well. So, but the, the rub here, and this is where I love the reform tradition because it gives us a little bit of both. Like it, it elevates us to realize that this call is for everybody. And at the same time, it kind of brings us down so we don't get too hyped up yeah. in trying to import Christian ideals into a calling. And what I mean by that is, let's say like when a Christian is called to uh, like cabinet making, you know, he or she is not engaged in kingdom work or sacred calling in a sense. Hear, hear me out with this. Right. But that's not to like demean that trade like like it was in medieval Rome, like what you're talking about, or even much of modern evangelicalism. It's to liberate us from thinking that something has to be justified by its usefulness to redemption, as if like creation is not sufficient as a sphere in and of itself. So like a calling to make cabinets is the same for the Christian, non-Christian alike, but because the unbeliever is still creating God's image and is the beneficiary of God's common grace, he or she is given a vocation by God in this world. I mean, God didn't abandon the world and creation in order to work with just like the elect people. Right. But he's like patiently enduring the world's rebellion during this interval, restraining wickedness while he extends his kingdom of grace to the ends of the earth. So what I love about that perspective 
if you think about it, that creates space for this shared sphere of human activity, which is neither sacred nor sinful, but common and eminently worthwhile. And so again, there's this wonderful sense that we should pursue our calling and not just our potential. And so we should just, I think, do the things that interest us with good motive, constantly bathing that in scripture and prayer and letting God lead us. I mean, so I'm curious because you have a unique kind of, I would say, educational pedigree history. And then with the work you do now, how have you seen God influence your calling and kind of lead you into jobs that you, you think, even if that wasn't where you expected to be, that you have been fulfilled in the sense of understanding that that was God's calling? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was in college, um, my friend Doug was, um, he was engaged to be married and he was training to be a minister. And he was kind of confronted with the fact that he was going to have to put all of his aspirations to be a minister on hold in order to um, start his family, right? He wanted to, he wanted to start his family. He wanted to pay down some debt. He wanted to have children. He wanted to buy a home. He had all these things he wanted to do. And I, I, I remember, and this was a turning point for me in my thinking. I asked him, I said, Doug, how can you, how can you put your calling on hold for this stuff? Like it's good stuff. It's important stuff, but how can you just, how can you just abandon your calling like this? And he looked at me and he said, Tony, my calling is to be a husband and a father as much as it is to be a minister. And so mm-hmm. for me, um, you know, the decision to, to, to take a job in, in medical administration, I, I needed a job because I had to pay the bills and I had to be able to support my wife and my family and my local church. And, um, and, you know, there's a lot of things that we do at the church um, and for the church here that I wouldn't be able to do if if I wasn't in the job that I'm in. If I if I didn't have the resources financially, um, you know, there's been times that I've been able to minister to people in the church um, in terms of helping them with medical decisions and navigating the medical system because I have sort of this insider view into the medical system that that I really wouldn't have had otherwise. So I think for me, it's it's been a matter of just seeing that God. God uses Romans eight twenty eight right. God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. That includes my vocation and my vocation. The the unique things about my job right now, my my calling at this moment, at least, is the things that He's giving me and bringing me. He works all of those things together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Right. Amen. So, so the elderly woman in my church who's diff- who's struggling with blood pressure issues. Well, I was able to call a nurse that I know and say, Hey, this person's got this blood pressure. Uh, is this, a, is this an emergency room visit or is this okay for her to wait till Monday? I have access to these things and I can minister to the people in my church in a way that I couldn't otherwise. So seeing that God works all those things together and recognizing it. And this has been an exercise of trust for me too, right? Because, you know, my, my understanding of my permanent kind of like vocational career is changing, but I thought that I was going to seminary in order to get a PhD and write books someday. And looking at it in my own ability right now, it doesn't look like that's ever going to happen. And having to come to terms with that and understand that has been an exercise in trust, in trusting the Lord that his way is not my way and his thoughts are not my thoughts and that my own motivations need to be brought into alignment with his, not the other way around, has been um, 
has been extremely sanctifying, I think. So God just has been very good to me in terms of helping me to see that just because I'm not working in the church or I'm not working in the the Christian academy, that my vocation is not useful. And I find all sorts of little ways um, throughout the day that um, God is able to use the fruit of the spirit, which he's bearing in me to bless people and, and in some ways probably bring them closer to the kingdom because it, my coworkers know that I'm a Christian and um, I'm not silent about it. I mean, I don't spend most of my time at work, like proselytizing, but, um, when I take extra time to ask for forgiveness because I do something out of line or cause I make a sarcastic comment cause I'm having a bad day, people take notice of that. And I think they, they wonder why that is. And it's not very long before they make that connection that like, wow, I hear that Christianity is a religion that's about forgiveness. And Tony's always asking forgiveness and he's very quick to forgive me when I do something wrong to him. Um, so I, I mean, I, that's kind of a long way to answer the question, but it's just, it's been really clear to me that God has used my vocation and my calling at this point in my life as a medical administrator, um, in, I think probably just as much as he would have, as if he called me into the church or into uh, Christian academia at this point too. And there's something super beautiful about that, that borders like, unfortunately on cliche because we're, we'll, you know, people are prone to say, well, everybody's a missionary, but that's cliche because it's absolutely true. Right. And I'm thinking in your particular sense, in your sphere of influence with the people and the colleagues that you have in the office that you have with the, the unique group of people, because medical people are unique people yeah. and um, they're getting to rub shoulders with you and see you interact in a way that, you know, think about like you are basically breaking into their lives in a way that would not be possible if it weren't you and it weren't you in that job. Right. I mean, God would make that happen according to his great plan through Christ any way that he, see, he sees fit, but he sees fit to use you. And right. so there's something really wonderful about that. And I, I don't know if we sell ourselves short in the sense that we do not take enough responsibility for this kind of imaging of God and taking that weight very seriously. But I, I'm trying to get better at that because yeah. I, I think we are given unique opportunities to break through. And as far as trying to determine, well, where is that? I think the best thing we can do is continue to pursue our passions, the things that we, when we take inventory that we love to do. And I, I like something I think Calvin wrote about this, which is from his, his institutes where he said like each person's calling is his own kind of living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post right. so that he may not heedlessly wander about through life. I yeah. love that. There's the sense of like move forward with what it is that you love to do and have that purified by the power of the spirit for a right motive and proper attitude and just keep moving forward as God allows you to and see what he does. Because from my own career, I would have never have imagined at the outset that I'd end up where I am now. But the wonderful thing is I like this far better than anything I could have put forward for yeah. myself. Yeah. And and so I find that when I'm faithful to the calling of just trying to be obedient and to serve faithfully among the people in particular, but also making sure that my frame of mind for the work that I complete is first really an act of actual worship, that that just changes everything. And then there's a lot less to worry about in terms of, do I make this decision or that decision? Do I, you know, go and try to pursue this opportunity or that opportunity, but that God in his loving kindness is faithful to lead. It's if, if, it's if he says, whether you turn to the right or the left, you will hear my voice clearly behind you saying, this is the way walking it right. when we put first things first. Yeah. So, I mean, calling. You yeah. got to get after it. 
Yeah. You know, I want to just back up a tiny bit to something you said about how, you know, every, every job is a mission field, right? And that's cliche, but it's cliche because it's true. But one of the things that I think we miss, right? You, you, you know, some missionaries, you know, people who are doing missions work. I know some people who are doing missions work. Most of missions work looks just like ordinary vocation, right? When when you talk to someone who's a lifelong career missionary, um, they're, they're, just most of the time they're kind of just living their life, sharing the gospel with the people around them. Um, you know, they're, they're church planners a lot of times in, in another country, but a lot of times they're, they're building, they're working as a construction worker, right? One of my, um, one of my buddies who's a, an admin in the pub, um, in the reform pub, he is a missionary. He's an OPC missionary. And what he does most of the time is he like helps build schools and he, he does construction and he, he employs people. He has employees um, that he manages and, um, but he shares the gospel through that ordinary vocation. And we don't think of missions work as ordinary vocation. And that's, that's what, if, if I can summarize this whole conversation and distill it down, everything is an ordinary vocation because none of us have an extraordinary call. And that that's key is that we we've got to get out of this mindset. This um, and I'm not saying this to dig on on David Platt because I know that his book was about more than just this. But the Christian life, by and large, is not radical, right? We're not we're not called to be radical people. We're called to, like you said, out of Thessalonians, we're called to live quiet lives, to mind our own business, to work with our hands. And to share the gospel with first our family, then with those immediately around us. And then maybe some of us are called to leave our friends and family and homes and go to a foreign land to do that. But most of us are called just to to live quiet lives of obedience to the law, obedience to Christ's commands, and to share the gospel with the people that we see. And that that's what we see in the scriptures, right? I, I don't want to make too much out of it, but when Christ gives the Great Commission— we read it in our in our New Testament translations, and it's go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the commands that I've given you. But what we don't realize is that although grammatically, yes, this works out, but the the words go, baptize, and teach are different. They're not technically speaking, they're not commands. They take on a sort of imperative force because they're associated with the imperative, but they're not commands in and of themselves. And so those things are attendant means. They're they're things that go along with the process of making disciples, which functions as we go about our lives, right? It's not a command to go. It's a command to live your life such that you are making disciples. And that involves sharing right. the gospel and baptizing and teaching, right? Word and sacrament that happens in the church as we bring people with us into the church through our personal evangelism. So we have to just get past this idea that like so much of evangelicalism is really just Roman Catholicism warmed over in terms of some of these mistakes, right? We, we've got different sacraments sometimes, like quiet time is the new sacrament. That's where grace is found. Um, and missions and um, maybe being a pastor, that's the new priesthood or monastic life. And and we just have to get past it. Um, and there's so many people that I know who just look down on their callings. They look down on the station that their life and they're like, well, you know, I'm just a, I'm just an accountant. I, I'm just a financial advisor. I'm just a medical administrator. I'm just a college admissions counselor, whatever it is. 
But no, you're not just that. You have been called into a vocation. And because the person who's doing the calling is the highest person in all of reality, then your calling is a high calling, regardless of whether it's into ministry or not. Right on. Man, that was beautiful right there. <laughs> I, I get on these like rants. I got to like spread it out a little more. No, that was that was beautiful. I absolutely love that. It's really about infiltration. Right. I mean, we got to think about it in the sense you're right, that so much of what uh, missions, quote unquote, like missions field work is, it's not like just preaching to everybody, like standing right. on a box in a pulpit somewhere and, and just preaching. It is really sharing life with other people, building relationships and thereby ministering to them by way of that relationship and that hard work. And in fact, the church and the denomination that uh, we currently attend has a policy that they will not send anybody to the mission field that doesn't have a master's degree in, in training of some sort because they want them to be practically equipped to be able to live and work with their hands and lead this kind of life where you're minding your own business at the same time loving people in practical and, and logical ways. And I, I yeah. think there is something really beautiful about that because it elevates this idea of we are all to live that way. Some will do that in Belarus and in Uganda, and some will do that in New York and Florida and elsewhere. But it's it's all to be done by every Christian. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably as good a place to end it as any. You know, this topic is so important because there are a lot of things in the Christian life that are specific to this person or specific to that group or, you know, something like this, that this group experiences uniquely. But this idea of vocation, it, it might be one of the few things in the Christian life that we talk about that is truly universal, not just among Christians, but among everybody. Even even non-Christians can't get away from the language of calling, right? right. So, so this is a really important topic, and I would just encourage people to really think through and pray through this. And, you know, if you want to take that, um, the course that I, I mentioned at the North American Reform Seminary, um, if you go to TNARS, T-N-A-R-S dot net, um, you can actually view all of the um, course syllabi, like the, the course listings, and all of the lectures are available for free. All of the books that you read are available for free. So you could go, the, the course is called PRE 500. Um, and like I said, it's specifically about the call to ministry history. But I think so much of what he says is applicable to our general call. Um, it just really is. Um, it really is just a pattern that we should think through. And speaking of call, if you'd like to call us. Nice. You like that? You've yeah. got the ministry of segues. I was, oh, thank you. I was holding on to that for a little while. <laughs> If you want to call us and get your voice in this beautiful conversation, we'd love for you to do that. The number to leave a voicemail is 607-444-2767. Bros. B-R-O-S. All right, Jesse. Well, I think that just about does it. Um, there's all sorts of cool new stuff coming up that we're working on, not just for the Reformed Brotherhood, but for the Society of Reformed Podcasters. So stay tuned for some cool uh, cool announcements, some cool information that we've got coming up in the next month or so. Um, it's going to be pretty exciting stuff. And uh, As they say, 2019 is going to be banging. 2000, do they say that? Who says that? I'm saying that. As Jesse says, <laughs> 2019 is going to be banging. You better believe it. So with that uh, closing remark, until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Bye.